Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always is my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. How are you this week? It's a kind of a quiet week in terms of video game news, at the very least. I feel like I'm just kind of casting about looking for anything interesting to talk about when it comes to RPGs. Uh, yeah, you know, I've been, uh, I actually just started, uh, the, uh, persona q labyrinth yeah. i don't think we're allowed to talk about that though because it's under embargo <laughs> oh, okay so that's that's for next time then. yeah maybe yeah i also got a code so i'm looking forward to playing that one sweet and yeah i'm still kind of going at trails of cold steel so you never played the original persona q right no i didn't so this is all a new hat for me i think you'll end up liking it if you enjoyed Etrian odyssey not the least because it has a story and yeah. maybe better production values yeah, um, I can already tell it's quite a bit like uh, Etrian Odyssey, um, but I guess that's something we'll get into more uh, probably next week. Yeah, and maybe less complicated in the sense that you aren't creating your own characters uh, from whole cloth using the different classes, but instead using the established characters from Persona. I'm referring more to the original Persona Q, which I did enjoy, though I didn't ultimately play that much uh it was a, always felt like a little bit of a grind to get through the the big dungeons. So Yeah, yeah. I think that's uh it's kinda like the same way with Etrian Odyssey as well, even though I, I can already tell Persona Q is more streamlined definitely than Etrian Odyssey, but it's uh still that uh kinda square by square dungeon crawling movement that's uh it is really fun for a time, but uh sooner or later you're like, Okay, I'm good. I'm still playing Super Robot Wars T. You finished it yet? No, but I'm really far at this point. I'm on, I think, map 36 out of 55, so I'm more than halfway through. <laughs> You're getting there. The robot wars drag on. I think I officially like it better than SRWV at this point, uh, and would probably be the one that I would recommend to anybody who weren't looking for a specific series. I think because I I like the series in this one on the whole a lot more than just taken as a whole more than uh, T. Because uh, Harlock and Magic Knight Ray Earth and Cowboy Bebop uh, all kind of make it for me. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of nostalgia there. And I think uh, even people who are just generally interested in robots and mech and the stuff they grew up with in the 90s probably like it. But it's also been fun to see how they've mixed in various Cowboy Bebop plots. <laughs> even if, annoyingly, Cowboy Bebop still barely gets any play in no, this that's game. too bad. Spike really feels like a an extra in this game. <laughs> oh, that's too bad. He should be, like, front and center, man. You would think so, but Harlock is also not that front and center in this one. And Magic Knight Ray Earth feel, it is in there, but it feels like a little bit of a sideshow compared to... Like, it's hard to pick out what the most prominent series in this one is. I feel like Gundam gets a lot of play maybe g gundam i think maybe g gundam might be the most prominent one in this one because i feel like i'm fighting i feel like their characters are really central to the plot and that kind of thing is that the one we talked about with the tequila gundam that's right yes (laughs) so oddly enough oddly enough this game takes place after the end of the the original show oh so the gundams are still up there and fighting yeah the whole point was that like the the original show was over this takes place after all of that but somehow Master Asia is still alive, and he's and everybody's trying to figure out why exactly he's still around. So Tequila Gundam will never know peace. He must keep on journeying and fighting. <laughs> but now that I'm to the point where I've unlocked a lot of upgraded units and everything, 
I'm ridiculously, insanely powerful. And I'm now getting to the point where a lot of the most impressive graphics are happening. Uh, <laughs> you, it's always, It's annoying because some of the units get a lot, like just are gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Where you are completely shocked by how incredibly beautiful the animation is with them. Like mm-hmm. a lot of the Gundams, for example, get just an extra amount of love. And then some of the rest, like Magic Knight Ray Earth, are a little more variable, I feel like. So basically, all mechs are created equal, but some are more equal than others? I don't know. I think it's, I don't know what their development process is, but the impression I often get is that they assign them out across a handful of different artists. So it's like, oh. okay, so you, uh, the top artists are going to be working on the Gundams because th- those are the most iconic ones. Right. And then the rest get parceled out between everybody else, right? Yeah. Or yeah. others are just like really long standing, uh, have been around in all these different games forever and are extremely well-known, so it's actually pretty easy to give them a little extra love as opposed to having to create whole new animations from whole cloth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that you makes know. sense. But the, the Gundam animations are incredible in this one, except for G-Gundam. <laughs> G-Gundam is actually probably the weakest out of all the Gundam animations, believe it or not. Well, it is kind of a weird series to begin with. It is, but yeah, so I, I like Super Robot Wars T. Uh, I just did a couple of secret scenarios where I unlocked the original units from the previous games that I've played, and that made me pretty happy. And yeah, cranking right along in that one, aside from playing Stardew Valley. (laughs) (laughs) So how's that going with uh, your partner? We haven't played in a few days, actually, but we're almost to the end of year one, I think. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, so we'll we'll be in the winter soon. Though we have kind of slightly different philosophies about how we want to do our farms. <laughs> so half the farm is fairly organized and the crops are all nicely lined up and everything. And that's my side. Oh, boy. And her side is completely overgrown with grass because she insists that the animals have to be able to f- be free range and eat the grass rather than having to eat I from the I am on silos. her side. I am like 100% uh, uh, into animal agriculture when I play Stardew Valley. I let the grass grow wild and I, I fence it in and then I like buy a bunch of cows and sheep and, and chickens and... I but we haven't even fenced in the grass. The grass is just everywhere. <laughs> oh, okay, I'm at least that organized. Uh, to uh, the credit of uh, uh, Concerned Ape who made the game, the AI of the animals is pretty good because in the original Harvest Moon, if you let the animals out, they weren't going back in unless you pushed them into the barn yourself, and that was a, a big ordeal on the SNES. And if you didn't push them into the barn at the end of the day, uh, once in a while you'd hear a terrible animal sound in the middle of the night and you'd wake up and you'd just see feathers on the ground and you'd be down one chicken that is messed up it's very very messed up i was when i saw that i was just like oh my god like my heart just broke in two i like that the animals are immortal in stardew valley (laughs) me too me too i am really glad for that because one time i don't know what happened but somehow i accidentally left my game on for like two in-game years and my animals were mad at me because they didn't get fed that night and several other nights afterwards, but they were fine. And my, you want to talk about an overgrown uh, farm, holy crap. <laughs> it was just like fields of green as far as the eye could see. So over the course of eight hours, your characters continually, your character continually got up, fell back asleep, collapsed from exhaustion at 2 a.m., got up, and then it kept yes. going for two in-game years? 
basically, it just kept on going and going, and I can't remember specifically how it happened. It has something to do with me experimenting with uh, PS4 Vita crossplay. Plus, I had the uh, I had the flu very badly, and I was really feverish, and I had no idea what I was doing. So, <laughs> combine those two ingredients, and you get an overgrown farm. I went back to my original farm last night, and I was playing it a bit, and I was kind of walking around, marveling at, at it, and going, wow. It's so pretty and so organized, and <laughs> look at all this beer. So it's much not, beer. It's not like the odd couple. <laughs> it, there, it is a little odd couple-ish. I'm not going to lie. But So anyway, for want of anything really substantial to talk about or review this week, we are going to be continuing our console RPG quest this week with a big one. We started mm. last time with the Atari and such, and this time we are going to be doing the NES, which is one of the most significant consoles ever in terms of RPGs, though Americans might not know it. We're also going to be talking about, we're also going to be hitting a little bit of RPG news and all of that. Uh, Acts of the Blood God can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and all of those wonderful pod catchers. If you enjoy the podcast, (laughs) please leave us a review and uh, rate us because that does help the visibility of the podcast. And we do enjoy reading positive reviews from our listeners who enjoy it. Nadia is also doing a newsletter. Uh, Nadia, what was your most recent topic? Well, in honor of uh, things that happened in Game of Thrones, I wrote about a very basic topic, but a good one, I think. And that's just basically cool dragons and RPGs. Uh, dragons, of course, are a staple of RPGs. They, they practically define RPGs. And I just kind of am invested in the history of, of dragons in, in franchises like Final Fantasy, where they just kind of wholesale lifted Bahamut and Tiamat uh, from TSR and said, no, these are ours now. And um, like I said, I think the copyright ship has sailed because when you have like the way that, for example, Bahamut is defined in Final Fantasy, it is quite different from Dungeons and Dragons. Um, of course, Elder Primal Bahamut is responsible, in a way, story-wise, for uh, Final Fantasy XIV: A Realm Reborn, where he just basically raised the world to the ground and uh, Square Enix kind of rebuilt it all the way back up. So he's uh, Bahamut is, of course, extremely significant in Final Fantasy games, as is Tiamat, maybe to a lesser extent. And you have other dragons, too, like talked a little bit about Parthenax from Skyrim, uh, talked about the uh, how much I like the designs for dragon quests, like simple green dragons, very simple but very compelling. Uh, just kind of a little fun conversation about that. Are you watching Game of Thrones, Nadia? No. Uh, like I said on Slack, what I do is I look up the dragon parts on YouTube, and I'm good. I'm not going to say anything, but I was really depressed after the last episode. <laughs> I, I do know of what happened in the last episode and certain events that took place. So, yes, I understand. Man, I just, I can't even, I didn't think that Game of Thrones could make me feel anything again. Because, I mean, it got so bad last season that I just completely checked out and uh-huh. didn't really care anymore. And I'm just playing out the string. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But this episode, no, that's not true. I did actually still care about these characters. And when the sh- episode was done, I was just like, wow, wow. Like, I, I can't believe they did that. <laughs> I mean, I can believe they did that. But I, man, Nadia, 10 years, 10 years down the drain. Ugh. 
Are you like Jeez. one of those people who are going to sign the uh, petition to redo everything? <laughs> no, I don't care. <laughs> but but at the same time, I really do hope now that George R. R. Martin survives and finishes this freaking series because yeah. I really want to see what his original vision was. Yeah, and so I hope it's a heck of a lot better than the TV show. <laughs> yeah, at this rate, um, uh, uh, didn't he have to sign off on what happened though? Like, I, I don't know. Exactly oh no, what he he put together the cliff notes. Don't get me oh, wrong, okay. right? But the cliff notes seem to have been fairly basic, and the creators of the show just kind of ran with it in their own direction, right? And you can right. see the bits where it was clearly George R. R. Martin was like, "We are building to this," mm-hmm. which I can understand, but. How they get there is so clumsy that it's actually fairly infuriating and manages to sell out a lot of character development. Yeah, see, that I can understand why people would be a little bit frustrated with that. I mean, these guys, uh, they're really good at adapting regular fiction, but they don't seem to know how to plot their own stories worth a damn. Yeah, apparently they just kind of, like, zoomed ahead. I wasn't... I don't know. It just they waste a lot of time... A lot of the actual scenes are inane and don't do anything, but then, and that's what makes so many major character moments feel completely unearned. Despite, despite eight years of buildup, somehow you're like sitting here going, what? That came out of nowhere. So. <laughs> the, I like the comparisons, like people saying, uh, oh, hey, Game of Thrones fan, now, now you know how us like, you know, uh, manga fans feel with animes. <laughs> it's true, right? It is, with anime adaptations. Anyway, you should subscribe to the newsletter because it's really good and it comes out every Wednesday and you can find the subscription information on the website. Okay, let's run through some RPG news really quickly. First piece of RPG news, and I feel like it's been a little underrated, but I do think it's totally worth mentioning. So I don't know when exactly this happened, but at some point, uh, Hideo Baba who was one of the major producers of the Tales series. He was always very uh, public-facing. I did actually meet him once and interview him. I think it was for Tales of Exilia, but I could be wrong. It's one of the many Tales games through through the years. And he really played up the, the cute the cuteness of the personality of the series. He always had like a little stuffed animal that he was carrying with him that you could get pictures taken with and that kind of thing. And... So he left Bandai Namco, and he went over to Square, and he had his own studio, and that was Studio Estolia, and he was creating a game. It was a rather nice-looking RPG for consoles, That was, uh, and there was a trailer last year at TGS that garnered some notice. Then all of a sudden, uh, Baba departed Square Enix. He's gone. He left. And now Project Prelude Rune has been canceled, and Studio Estolia is closed. Yeah, it's really uh, very, well, I'll be honest with you, I I completely forgot this game existed until I started hearing this news again, but then I saw that artwork of the the woman with the dragon, and I'm like, oh, I remember this. I was actually kind of curious about this. That's really a shame. Yeah, it is a shame, and it's uh, unfortunate because, I mean, Square seems to lately be throwing money at these ventures, like Luminous Studios. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they seem to kind of keep on just shutting down. (laughs) Yeah, and then they just kind of come to nothing, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's too bad. So I, it kind of smacks of left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing or not really having a plan, just kind of being like, oh, yeah, sure, like, let them do their thing. And then 
uh, six months later going, oh, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Uh, we're realigning our priorities. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Abort, abort. Abort, abort, abort. So anyway, uh, Godspeed to Hideo Baba. I'm sure he'll land on his feet. And uh, I look forward to whatever he creates next, as long as it's not a mobile game. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like the golden age of like uh, RPG developers departing our, uh, like companies to make mobile games is a, maybe a little bit past its prime. You think so? I mean, it's not like nothing that's going. It's not something that's not going to happen anymore. I'm just saying there was a time when everyone just seemed to be abandoning ship for mobile, and it's like I think that stabilized a little bit. I think so too. My understanding was that a lot of Japanese developers ran to mobile in the early 2010s, late 2000s. Yeah. And then discovered that they didn't actually want to work in mobile. They wanted to make real games. <laughs> yeah, there, there's that. And it's actually very hard to make mobile, make money on mobile games unless you are like Puzzles and Dragons or something. Yeah, Hironobu Sakaguchi seems to be in the mobile space permanently. I know that he yeah. said that he was working on a console RPG, but I haven't seen anything of late. Yeah, I am a little bit surprised about that. And uh, I did like Terra Battle, which was by uh, Mistwalker. Oh, and- you liked Terra Battle. I did like Terra Battle, although I, I tried replaying it recently, and I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, they're really kind of stringing you along for microtransactions here, which is too bad, because it's an interesting uh, game system, it's an interesting story, it actually has really interesting races and, and worlds and characters going on, but uh, it's one of those, hey, you want to keep on having a chance against the enemies, we keep throwing at you, you better, uh, you know, maybe grease our palms a little bit. That killed me, because... My main memory of Terra Battle was sitting in the audience when Sakaguchi unveiled it formally. <laughs> oh, were you there? Oh, yeah. And they showed a hype video for it. And it was clearly his friends. He took his friends out drinking, and then he pulled his phone out and was like, hey, I'm going to film you. Say something that you're going to uh, say something about Terra Battle that's nice. Because you could see the drinks <laughs> in their hands. And they're like, oh, yeah, Terra Battle. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> Uh, it, it did have the potential to be a, a good puzzle game. Like, it is a little bit like Puzzles and Dragons, which I like. Um, but, yeah, uh, I, I deleted it. I miss yeah. I miss the days when Sakaguchi made real games. Sorry. Oh, yeah, I definitely miss those. Don't get me wrong. I wish he'd go back to it. I think we were talking about Last Story in the last episode. I miss yeah. when he made those. Exactly. Yeah, me too. I, I would yeah. like to see. You know, if you want to keep on making mobile games, sure, be my guest. But, you know, maybe make a, a console game once in a while, please. I, I wouldn't mind. Speaking of mobile games, there's a lot of new Fire Emblem Three Houses news. And I say mobile because even though it's on Switch, I've been playing a lot of Fire Emblem Heroes. (laughs) (laughs) Still. Forever. It's never going away. Like, I don't know what is wrong with it. I think it's just firing something in my brain. I don't even like the game, but I just keep playing it. Yeah, you kind of, it's really got its hooks into you. I guess. I mean, I just, I have so many characters at this point. And it's just an easy thing for me to just kind of run through the content mindlessly. They are your family now, Kat. <laughs> they are my waifus. <laughs> your harem. You have a whole harem going on. But I got most of my favorite characters in that game. And so, like, I'm really happy to have them in one big party. And so I just enjoy deploying that party and playing through the various stories, even if the story kind of stinks. Yeah, the story, doesn't, the story like, is kind of boring. As for our Fire Emblem Three Houses, uh, uh, <laughs> I don't really know enough about it yet. Like, uh, I think it's, it's weird. Uh, so it there is was weird. There was a whole bunch of news about it in Famitsu, and I guess you're a Battle Academy instructor, mm-hmm. and all of the characters are your students, and you're teaching them. And then there's like a Persona-like calendar 
system that it goes through and they have birthdays and things and i'm just like what what is going on this does not sound like fire emblem but all of the old support systems and everything are still there and i'm sure it's gonna still be fire emblem me but well it's like we were just talking about uh sharp fv or whatever they it was called uh the uh the Wii U game that everyone wants to play, but no one actually played and wants to see again. But it looks like almost like they're trying to emulate a little bit of that for uh, Three Houses. So um, I'm, I'm I curious. think they're just trying to get a little bit of that Persona heat. I don't blame them. I like Persona. I'll give this a try. Yeah, Fire Emblem has gone so far off the deep end that it's practically unrecognizable now. Well, it was always kind of off the deep end. Not really. I mean, the original Fire Emblem games were kind of a fantasy manga, you know, swords and shields, very tactics heavy. And they didn't even introduce the relationship system until Mystery of the Emblem, which was a kind of a half new game, half remake, I think, for the mm-hmm. Super Famicom. But I I don't know, like ever since Fire Emblem Awakening, they've just gone full waifu and it kind of sucks. Yeah, I I don't know. I kind of uh I enjoy where it's gone. I mean, you do have, like, the the last uh, 3DS installments. You had the uh, the three versions. And, I mean, you even had Shadows of Valencia, which Shadows of Valencia was, a, was good, ultimately. Yeah. I, I will now cop to that game being good. <laughs> See, there you go. Like, before, you weren't big on that. And now you're I like, wasn't oh, okay. big on it. I, I've yeah. come around to it. I still have my issues with the, the balance and everything. I think uh-huh. it's in terms of the storytelling and the art, the structure of the game is, like, a lot of a lot of fun and i think really applies to appeals to hardcore old school fire emblem fans and so intelligent systems hasn't entirely forgotten the old fan base as also as demonstrated by fire emblem conquest it's obvious that they know what makes the money and oh, yeah. it's embarrassing every time they go even a little further off the deep end now they got a freaking battle academy story oh god freaking <laughs> high school comedy bullshit <laughs> give me a break Oh, I intend to enjoy it. I intend to enjoy it as well, and I will also be reviewing it. So watch out, Nintendo. I'm coming for you. No, uh, I don't know. I, I'll give it a shot. We'll see. But I haven't been super pleased with the direction of Fire Emblem over the past several years. Clearly. It's uh, it's one of those situations, it's one of those monkey paw situations where the game survived, but at what cost? Yeah, but I don't know. I'm kind of glad that it has that the big fandom and like the big photo shoots and everything. It's a it's a fun series fan wise. No, my mine my series. <laughs> no new fans. No new no new fans. No cater no, directly uh, to me. No Do not ca- cater no, to anybody else. No forgiving death. Permadeath only. <laughs> no, exactly. I mean, what's with this casual BS? Come on. <laughs> okay, oh, <Kat>, don't <laughs> be a gatekeeper. Get good. I don't want to get good. I want Play to play on fun. hardcore mode. Go away. It's my series. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's mine too. All right, a couple of uh, another news item. Um, so there's a lot of World of Warcraft uh, stuff mm-hmm. on our site because Mike went down to Blizzard just recently and checked it all out. WoW Classic is in closed beta now, so if you're into that sort of thing, you should go to it. I'll admit to being slightly baffled by the WoW Classic phenomenon, but I guess nostalgia is a hell of a drug. Yeah, um, I really get the impression that uh, Blizzard is like, you kids don't know what you want because you're kids, that's why you're stupid, but they're just giving it to people anyway because it's like, all right, here you go, you want it. Uh, Like I was saying on Slack, 
uh, Ragnarok Online had a classic mode from like, you know, 2003, those mechanics. I'm like, wow, I'm going to be so nostalgic for this. And then an hour later, I was like, this sucks, man. There's a reason <laughs> why no one really wants to go back to that shit. Yeah, I suppose. I do think there is something to be said for people who were like, there was a time when World of Warcraft was a lot more interesting of a game. And at, some, and at a certain point, maybe Blizzard streamlined a little too much of it out. And I think there is a actual debate to be had about the concept of developers wanting everybody to see the content that they've produced. I think that content can be its own reward and it's mm-hmm. maybe okay if you don't make it to the end. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. If yeah. it if it's just available for everybody, then it becomes rote. And then what's the point? What's it's just you're just passing time. You're not actually being challenged in any meaningful or interesting way. And yeah. I guess people maybe have a different different and changing of uh idea of what games should be at this point, but I mean, come on. <laughs> No, we just had that big discussion about Fire Emblem. I guess we did. Yeah, I, I guess I've become. I'm just kind of a curmudgeon about this. Like I, I like my games hard and annoying at times. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good bo- back of the box quote. I like my games hard and annoying. <laughs> Cap Bailey, U.S. gamer. Cap Bailey, U.S. gamer. Um, Octopath Traveler, a, another old school game. So I saw the price point on Steam. I just want to highlight this, Nadia. Did you know it was mm-hmm. $59.99 on Steam? That sounds, that sounds like the most Square Enix thing ever because when uh, we were just talking about mobile games and when mobile was kind of becoming a bigger thing and Square Enix was still into releasing full games on that platform, they would they had the most outrageously priced games on the platform to the point that everyone just rolled their eyes and sighed. They were talking about like, $40 mobile games for like, you know, Final Fantasy. Oh, I can't remember its name. There's like this kind of Final Fantasy Dimensions game, I think it was called. And it was okay. It was it was okay, pretty good, but it was 40 <laughs> it was $40. We always used to joke about the Square Enix tax, right? Oh, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Um I would not pay that price for the game on Steam. Why not just buy it on Switch? Hmm. Yeah, that's the problem is it's actually ten bucks more than Final Fantasy fifteen, and really? about the same as Final Fantasy fourteen complete. Jeez, that's that's pretty fantastic. I mean, granted, Octopath Traveler is a lot of game. It is. It is quite a bit. But I would think that you know thirty nine ninety nine would be a maybe a slightly better uh, price point for this game. Yeah. Um, I would think so. If you if they're charging that price for Final Fantasy XIV Complete, which is also a lot of game, yeah, I would say that's a bit too much for Octopath Traveler. Well, the Same. fact that it's even higher than Final Fantasy XV or Final Fantasy XII is kind of crazy to me. Yeah, that's a bit that's a bit weird, and I like Octopath a lot. I think this is why they're doing it. I think that they are basically trying to charge attacks to the the nuts who are going to double dip. Yeah, and it's like, I'm not quite that nutty. I I think their idea is, okay, we're only going to get so many sales out of Octopath Traveler on PC Mm because the bulk of people have already bought it on Switch. Mm -hmm. So the weirdos who do actually buy this game (laughs) on Steam, we are going to charge them out the nose. Yeah, and I honestly don't know why anyone would double dip, to be honest with you. Like, if you already have it on Switch, it's like, okay, it's portable. Uh, would you have it on Steam? Is there any new features on Steam? I mean, people might try to find ways to mod it. 
okay, that's fair. That'd be interesting. But um, until that happens, eh. Okay, since we're already on track with retro RPGs, why don't we move on to the main segment of this episode, which is the NES console RPG quest. So don't go away. All right, welcome to part two of the ongoing series of deep dives into the legacy, the RPG legacy of every console that we can really think of, at least every one that matters. Um, Yeah. Last time, as I already mentioned, we dove into the very earliest days of console RPGs on Intellivision and ColecoVision and that kind of thing. This time we're doing one that's much more mainstream. That is the Nintendo Entertainment System, also known as the Family Computer over in Japan. Yes. I mean, Nadia, this is a system that really needs no 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 introduction, right? Uh, not in terms of its RPG history, uh, certainly not. Uh, of course, we're talking about the Famicom here and instead of the NES, because as you might imagine, the Famicom's uh, RPG library was considerably more beefed up compared to the NES libraries. I don't know what our demographics are like, but I'm going to guess that they skew a bit older, and mm-hmm. probably most of our audience grew up with the NES, as opposed so. to people like Katie and Eric on our staff, who the NES was definitely before their time. Yeah, you hire another baby cat. I do. I don't know why I keep doing that. <laughs> you keep hiring babies. The children babies. <laughs> but of course, we did grow up with the Nintendo Entertainment System, and Nadia, I'm curious... Was the NES your introduction to RPGs? More or less, yes. Actually, yeah, I'd go ahead and say for sure. Uh, my first RPG, I would say, was uh, Dragon Warrior slash Dragon Quest, which was a lot of people's first RPG, probably, because Nintendo was literally trying to give it away. And um, I really kind of fell in love with RPGs after that game. I love Dragon Quest 2. I love Dragon Quest 3 uh, a whole hell of a lot. I never got to play 4 on the NES until I... Uh, pirated it uh gasp and then i played final fantasy but after that i fell off rpgs for quite a long time i didn't know rpgs were even a thing back in the days of the nes not at all not at all uh i got some ideas of it for example um my cousins had a copy of dragon quest because Mm -hmm. of the nintendo power giveaway and i found it kind of interesting but I never actually played it. Oh, you just kind of watched them play it? No, I didn't even watch them play it. I read about it in Nintendo Power, and I was like, oh, oh okay. that sounds neat. But I never actually got around to playing it. Oh, really? No, oh, I thought you played it. Yeah. Nope, I did not. Uh, I did not play the original Dragon Quest for quite a long time, actually. Not not certainly long after the NES was dead and buried. But Oh, wow. Beyond, I, I never played the original Final Fantasy either. Uh, I did not play that until the GBA version came out, uh, right. the remake. Which was much improved over the NES version. I think people would debate that, but at the time, oh, I enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, just, oh, just like Final Fantasy on the NES was, uh, it, we'll probably get into it, but it was really bugged. Yeah, it sure was. But yeah, so the uh, obviously the Nintendo has insane amounts of history behind it it's almost i would be it's its own podcast to go into it and god knows there have been a lot of different podcasts about 
the original NES, but I suppose a Cliff Notes version of it was that Nintendo used to be a kind of a toy maker slash card game makers, and then eventually they got into arcades. And then after the collapse of the console market over here, Nintendo decided to make the bold stroke of creating something called the family computer and moving into that space. And they brought a lot of their classic arcade games with them. The family computer was definitely a step up from the Atari 2600 and Intellivision and ColecoVision and that sort of thing. It became a big hit over in Japan to the point where they decided Nintendo decided to try and bring it over to America. So they tasked a man named Minoru Arakawa to do that. He led a task force, a small task force of people over here. Uh, they already had been established with their arcade business over here, uh, but they... They were tasked with launching the NES, which they managed to do, and obviously by 1987 or so, the NES was firmly established and was probably the the hottest thing going, and the an entire generation of kids grew up playing the Nintendo Entertainment System. It was that yes. big. but It was in everybody's living room. Well, not mine until much later, because uh, I guess we didn't have the money for it. But <laughs> I didn't get a Nintendo did. until 1990. Yeah, it was that was around the time I got mine. I'd say, yeah, 1990 sounds about right. My cousins were a little bit older than me, so they had the Nintendo and all the games and the subscription to Nintendo Power and everything. They were full-blown in the middle of Nintendo mania in the late 80s, whereas Mm -hmm. maybe I was a little bit young for that, because maybe I was four or five years old at the very height of it in 1987, 1988. Yeah, I was a baby. So I came in slightly later, but I did get a Nintendo in 1990, and... I mean, I played a lot of a lot of games on it until 1994 when I foolishly sold it like an idiot. Yeah, no, it's insane. But of course, uh, as we were kind of describing with the last deep dive into console history at that time, I'd say gaming culture was very different. It was much more arcade-driven, I would say, mm-hmm. especially on console. And of course, in the beginning, Nintendo made arcade games and toys. I mean, a lot of their earliest games were basically ports of their arcade games. Yeah, particularly Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr. Yes, so it's I mean, it took a little bit for RPGs to come around. RPGs were very much a PC gaming thing in this time. But then... Then, Nadia, Enix came out and created a little game. It was called Dragon Quest, which, I mean, again, a game that needs no introduction on this podcast. But it was famously based on elements from Wizardry and Ultima. And it was not actually a, a true mega hit initially. That was after Dragon no. Quest Two, which was yes. promoted by Shonen Jump. And, I mean, Nadia, I mean, give us an idea of just how important Dragon Quest ultimately was. Um, I don't know if the law is still in effect, but uh, there was a time when in Japan you could not release a new Dragon Quest game uh, during a weekday, a school day, or a work day because everyone would play hooky and go buy the game. <laughs> was that real? I thought that was always a legend. No, that was real. In fact, there was a, um, I don't know if it was a Geraldo report or, or something. There was like an old Nintendo report uh, about, you know, oh, kids are nuts for Nintendo. And they actually mention what's going on in Japan and how, like, Dragon Quest is so crazy popular that um, Dragon they have, like, footage of people le- lined up for Dragon Quest 3 and they mention the law. So, no, I don't think it's a legend. So let's put ourselves in the shoes of these individuals. So in 1997, the reason Final Fantasy VII became as big as it did was because it was so, for want of a better word, cinematic, 
Like yes. people were completely blown away by the storytelling and the and, and the graphics and the the cutscenes and everything, right? So why did Dragon Quest catch on the way it did in a culture that was so arcade-driven, so action-driven at the time? Um, I actually got to talk to uh, Dragon Quest creator Yuji Hori a little bit about this, and uh, to the credit of our former editor-in-chief, Jeremy Parrish, I was asking these questions in his stead. Uh, basically, I asked, why did you go to consoles, whereas, uh, you know... RPGs were really kind of a computer thing back then, even in Japan. And he specifically said he wanted to kind of capture that that child audience uh, with, you know, big, bright sort of manga graphics. Apparently, he used to write manga. Uh, and uh, he said most kids were into the Famicom, whereas most adults were more into computers. So he just kind of wanted to 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 bring kids in and give them, hey, here's a, here's a cool game you can play if you're, you know, really not good at action games. And a lot of people aren't good at action games. They don't have the reflex for them, especially those old platformers. So I think that uh, Dragon Quest uh, was a nice alternative for, for these kids. And I, I'm guessing uh, how, uh, given how Akira Toriyama, uh, even back then, he, he was unknown to us in the West, but he was by then quite popular in Japan. I'm sure his artwork helped uh, lure a lot of those kids well, in. Was, so. The Dragon Ball comic was in full swing by the time exactly. Dragon Quest yeah. came out. Yeah, so I think all of that combined, like kind of the simplicity of the game systems, the bright graphics, and the younger demographic who, of course, tend to get really involved in that sort of, when they latch onto something, they really latch onto something. I think that all just worked really well in Dragon Quest's favor. And uh, maybe, of course, as you said, the first game wasn't like a huge, huge mega hit, but uh, I would imagine Dragon Quest II's hype, as you said, it was in Shonen Jump, kind of help people look back and say, oh, this this looks really cool. I think get into this. And sure enough, they did. I think that is at the root of the split between Western-style RPGs and Japanese-style RPGs. Whereas Western-style RPGs were based on tabletop games and war games mm-hmm. and Dungeons and & Dragons and that kind of thing, uh, Dragon Quest certainly comes from that a little bit, from that heritage a little bit because of Wizardry and Ultima, but there's also a strong manga component. Definitely. To it. Yes, there definitely is. And uh, I mean, Lord knows, I wasn't huge into computer RPGs myself, but uh, I was really attracted to Dragon Quest's, like, you know, bright graphics. Of course, the monster designs are still iconic and excellent. So I, even though Dragon Quest did not take off in the West, I can definitely see why it took off, period. So if you go back to 1986, if most mm. of these games were like Space Invaders, which yes. is certainly a flavor, but. If you're playing a game like Dragon Quest, all of a sudden you have what amounts to a digitized version of a manga, especially because it had the look and feel of Dragon Ball, which was gigantic in Japan by this time, Mm -hmm. thanks to Shonen Jump. It's like you're playing an interactive version of a a Shonen Jump issue. Yeah, basically that was uh, Yuji Horii's initial intention and he carried through on it. Yeah, and so you mentioned those big, bright characters, well-designed characters and everything. They really must have stood out on the NES at that time, or the Famicom, I suppose, uh, because, you know, I mean, graphics still weren't that good. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, yeah. Dragon Quest, Dragon Warrior itself did not have that great of graphics, but the art was still really distinct. Yeah, and not only that, but uh, if you look at the Japanese version of Dragon Quest, uh, you could actually tell they improved it significantly for Dragon Warrior. They added a lot of flourishes. 
in the original Dragon Quest, your character sprite doesn't even, like, he always faces forward no matter what, no matter where, which direction he's walking in. And they changed that for the NES uh, version, and that's just for a start. So if you go and read Jeremy Parrish's History of RPG series over on our site, which he promises he will finish one day. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. He did a he did a rundown of a lot of the imitators that the original Dragon Quest ended up spawning. And a lot of these are ones I've never heard of before. For example, have you ever heard of Super Monkey Daiboken? No, something tells me it has to do with the Monkey King, though. Yes, it is, quote, VAP's incompetent take on the Journey to the West legend. <laughs> wow, there are some bad games based on the Journey to the West legend, but uh, it has to be pretty bad for Parrish to point it out and say, ew. There was another one called Stargazer, which was, quote, oh. another futuristic-themed RPG that appears to operate without any sense of internal logic. <laughs> He's such a great writer. I miss Parrish so much. Has a good name, though, Stargazer. Like, really I, I want to play this game, Stargazer. I, it has a very yeah. 80s feel to it. I'm imagining shiny chrome, sharp angles, robots. Yeah, robots, of course. <laughs> Wait, how do you get robots out of Stargazer? That's... I don't know. It's just that was the image that appeared in my head was of, of a very 80s sci-fi aesthetic. And I think robots were a big part of that. Okay, that makes sense. Also, you know me and robots. Come on. You're always thinking about robots 24-7. Uh, I think I might have mentioned this before, but there was totally a very bad uh, Gundam game that was basically just a Dragon Quest knockoff. It looked like a ROM yes. hack. Yeah, and I think, uh, speaking of Parrish, he might have reviewed one of the Game Boy versions on his Game Boy World series. So, surprisingly, that success did not translate to the U.S. So while all this was happening, the U.S., uh, the NES was getting underway in the U.S. The story is legend. If you've never read Game Over, uh, it's, you know, old at this point, but it's one of the earliest examples of classic reporting. Yeah, it was pretty great for its time. It still is pretty, it's still worth reading today. As it was happening, I always thought it was interesting. <laughs> I always thought it was kind of funny how the book is pitched as this like kind of dark and frightful thing of like how the how the video game industry zapped an industry and captured the minds of your children. <laughs> <laughs> game over. It just says it all right there. But when you actually read it, it's a really kind of fascinating ode to the early history of video games and the mm -hmm. creation of Tetris mm -hmm. and all of that stuff. Yeah, so. there really wasn't, uh, at the time when it was published, there, it was the go-to source because there really weren't that many out there. Yeah. In fact, I would say a lot of different books still rely really heavily on it. But yeah, so you should definitely go read it. But it, it talks a lot about how at this time around, uh, the NES was taking off. In America, and obviously American game culture, there were similarities in the sense that arcades were big, and people were playing games on PC in both Japan and America. I would say Americans had somewhat similar tastes, but I would say that obviously American comic culture was different than Japan. Yeah, like, definitely. You uh, certainly weren't going to the magazine rack every week and picking up a new issue of Shonen Jump with uh, the new the newest issue in the serial serialized comic, right? <laughs> no, you really weren't. Uh, in fact, if you look at those old box uh, boxes for Dragon Quest slash Dragon Warrior in the West, uh, you will see how they literally took Akira Toriyama's designs and and westernized them. And looking back now, it's actually very fascinating because they did. They implement some of the, the classic iconic uh, iconography of 
the series into like kind of a Western aesthetic. And I love that. But you were basically looking more at Superman than you were at Goku. So the traditional, the traditional narrative is that RPGs just did not catch on in America. Uh, there was always the, this all the talk about the Dragon Warrior promotion, how Nintendo was like, Dragon Quest is going to be the next big thing in America. We have decided that it, this is going to be so. We are bringing the, 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 the mania over. And it didn't work. Americans didn't buy it for various reasons. Um, well, I don't know if it was the promotion. I, maybe it was the outdated graphics since... Didn't Dragon Quest come out in like 1990 over here? <laughs> Yeah, that was a problem with a lot of RPGs over on, on these shores. I think maybe that was part of the problem was they took so long to localize that by the time they got here, they were just thoroughly unimpressive looking. It got to the They made so many copies expecting a gigantic hit that they had way too many extras, so they ended up giving them away as a part of a promotion for the, the yeah. magazine. Yeah, again, which is why everyone seemed to have a copy of the damn game. Yeah, even though they probably never really played it that much. <laughs> No, pretty much. Um, he was hard and grindy. What do you want? It's really... When people say, oh, which Dragon Quest game should I play, Nadia? I never recommend the first one. No, no. It's Dragon Quest Five, as we said in our Top 25 RPG Countdown. Absolutely. I would say five or... Uh, yeah, five's a good start. But despite that, it wasn't like the NES was bereft of RPGs. Uh, a lot of classic PC RPGs did ultimately make their way over to the NES. And they include Ultima, which was the first time I ever even heard of Ultima. I didn't even know that RPGs were a thing, but I did know that Ultima was a thing. I didn't know what Ultima was. I just knew that it had an interesting name. <laughs> uh, the reason I knew what it was is because I used to watch, um, what was it, Video Power? And that was always one of the games they were giving away, Ultima Quest of the Avatar. Yes, it, Ultima Quest of the Avatar in particular was fairly different from the PC version. Very stripped down and simplified by it comparison. Be, yeah. Smaller party sizes, that kind of thing. I think they were bumping up against the limits of uh, the NES cartridge and such. Yeah, probably. I never got to play it myself. It was always one of those games where I looked at it and I was like, oh, I'm interested in this, but I never got around to playing it. Had different music as well. Uh, other PC games that made their way over to the Nintendo, The Bard's Tale, various wizardry games, yes, and Pool yes. of Radiance. And in fact, Jay Lewis on Twitter says, even though I was very young, I have vivid memories of playing Ultima and NES because I always picked Heart Shield Girl as my lead. It was a defining <laughs> point of role-playing because though I didn't know what to do, it just let me go and do me, a small boy with his Heart Shield Girl. Aw, that's so sweet. So, I mean, RPGs were making their way onto the NES in various ways. It just, I wouldn't say particularly mainstream at this point. <laughs> no, definitely not. Um, I don't know why RPGs really, like, really enraptured the people who got into them, like, for example, myself. But uh, it just seemed to glaze over everyone. It just seemed to zoom over everyone else's heads. And to this day, I don't know if there's a really good answer for why that happened. Oh, it's easy. Uh, it's because, were you a big reader? Yes, I there you go, right? I mean, RPGs offered reading and storytelling in a time when video game stories were extremely simple. And you wanted to get into these universes. You wanted to feel like you were part of it. And RPGs offered that level of immersion that your standard shmup or platformer just did not. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. But then I wonder, well, why did Japan latch onto it? And other than the manga graphics, I wonder if also, the, as you mentioned, mangas were serialized. Mangas told 
an ongoing story. And, and so Japanese kids were already kind of invested in that really deep storytelling that, uh, again, American comics were great in their own way, but they were more self-contained stories back then. So it, I guess just different cultures at work. I think I think it's partly that. And, you know, Dragon Quest was just the perfect game for the perfect time, right? Mm-hmm. I mean... The fact that it was done by the guy who did Dragon Ball. The fact that it was able to get promotion in Shonen Jump. The fact that Shonen Jump even existed over there. And so all of that made it the perfect storm for Japan that did not exist over here. There was nothing equivalent to that. There was no equivalent of Shonen Jump over in the U.S. or Canada. There was no, uh, like, people didn't know who the heck Akira Toriyama was. People weren't reading manga and so it it was just different. The circumstances yeah. were different. Although um, you're saying, oh, there's no, like, didn't really have the same vehicle for promotion. I don't know about you, but did you see, like, when you read comics back in the day, did you see, like, endless promotions for Hydlide, which was a real piece of garbage RPG for the NES? I sure did not. It, it was actually a really cool-looking advertisement because it had, like, it was always on the back of, like, Archie Comics, which I read, you know, endlessly when I was a kid. Uh, had like a, a picture of like a knight fighting like this massive green dragon and it made the game look so cool and of course the game is like just trash i think some of it was that manga was fairly mainstream over in japan like I, everybody reads manga i mean especially young young kids right whereas i feel like in america D, even though it was massively popular in many ways it was still derided as a nerd thing and so rpgs connecting directly to uh say tabletop gaming uh we're going to necessarily be nerdier than say tech mobile but i just think that there wasn't the right game to really help rpgs take off in the same way dragon quest was the right game and then it ended up being the spark that started the blaze in japan and then tons of follow-ups came and it was a neat match for the media over in Japan and the way that people consumed media. And it wasn't the same over here. Uh, but there was an R- one RPG that did actually manage to create a spark, even if it didn't ultimately create a, a blaze. And that was the original Final Fantasy. Yeah. Um, it's funny because I think back to when I played Final Fantasy. And I played Final Fantasy after I played like the pretty excellent Dragon Warrior 3 for the NES and I, I, I really despised Final Fantasy, just saying it right there. <laughs> I, I found it like, here's the thing people don't give Dragon Quest, Dragon Warrior enough credit for. It has a really good localization. Those first games are, are localized very well, very well. It makes it easy to get around in the world, let you know, oh, this spell does this, this item does this. Uh, I was playing Final Fantasy, and I'm like, what the hell is this game trying to tell me? Because everything's abbreviated, like... Everyone has to try to talk to you within one single text box that kind of pops up slowly. I just hated the hell out of this game. (laughs) But it was prettier. Much prettier than the original Dragon Quest. Than the original, but compared to Dragon Quest 3. Yeah, but most people didn't play Dragon Quest 3. I know. That was really a shame because Dragon Quest 3 came out, it came out like right at the end of, of the NES's life practically. I'm still amazed they even brought over Dragon Warrior 4. Did you ever read 8 Bit Theater? The, the comic uh, that was popular in 2003? <laughs> I didn't read it regularly, but I do remember like the, the jokes, like I like swords and Black Mage was a, a sociopath. That was my first uh, connection to the original Final Fantasy. Wow, really? That's a it hell was. of an introduction, Kat. Yeah, because, I mean, circa 2003, 
I had played Final Fantasy 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, but mm-hmm. I had never played the original Final Fantasy. And so most of the characters, like Fighter and Black Mage and everything, I didn't realize that they had just yanked the sprites directly from them. I was just kind of <laughs> like, huh, those are fun sprites. <laughs> oh, and this is kind of based on Final Fantasy? Neat. And then, and you know, of course, I enjoyed the gags about the Hadoken and everything from Black Mage. It, it was course, funny yeah. for the time. It was very early internet and its style of humor. But it really was, yeah, yeah. But uh, it was maybe a couple years later that I finally got around to playing the original uh, Final Fantasy, and I was like, oh, okay, this all makes a lot more sense to me now. <laughs> so you kind of missed out. Also, speaking of Black Mage jokes, you missed out on everyone naming the Black Mage Orko. Uh yes, what? Why? Why is that a thing? Uh, Orko from He Man. The the he looks exactly like a black mage. He has like kind of a a a, a shadowed face with big uh-huh. expressive eyes and a big pointy hat, and everyone hates him. But everyone likes black mage. So I never watched He Man. Oh, you didn't? Nah. Oh, what about Shira? Did you watch Shira? Nah, nah. I was too busy watching might... Boltron. Hmm. Okay. Well, I can't. I can't fault you there. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, so the original Final Fantasy did manage to catch on a little bit over here. It certainly had a cult audience that far outstripped Dragon Quest, and I think it was ultimately helped by the fact that the graphics were a lot better. So, Yeah, there is probably a reason why the NES Classic has Final Fantasy and not Dragon Warrior on it. Uh, Jeremy has an interesting theory in his article. Mm -hmm. He said... Final Fantasy's willingness to take itself more seriously than Dragon Quest and that game's innumerable clones made it deeply unfashionable in Japan, where cute and fun reigned, but it helped the game's fortunes abroad. Oh, that's very interesting. And uh, another point you brought up that I think is true is it was a little more visually compelling because that was one of the first RPGs, if not the first RPG, where you see your party members as they attack instead of just looking at them face on. So I asked our readers for their memories of NES RPGs, and you might be surprised to know that Final Fantasy came up quite a bit. I hear a couple of them. 21st Century Schizoid Anteater says, I first played the original Final Fantasy when I was five, and I had no idea what I was doing, how to buy equipment, (laughs) what experience leveling up was, etc. So I went straight to Garland, was terrified by a sprite, died, and never played again until years (laughs) later. (laughs) I love the idea of being terrified by a sprite. That is pretty cute. I, I like that a lot. I had borrowed the Nintendo Power Strategy Guide from a friend, though, so instead of actually playing, I read the guide over and over, enjoying the art and flavor text. Ah, yeah. Um, don't worry about it. I played Final Fantasy when I was, I must have been like 10 or 11, and I had no idea what I was doing either. And I was an experienced RPG player by then, so don't worry. So Matt Blakeman says, I remember renting Final Fantasy, playing it all weekend, then checking Nintendo Power to see how far I was and realizing I really needed to own this game because I wasn't close to being done. That uh, that actually happened with me in Final Fantasy 3 slash 6. I was like, oh, I'm at the... I'm at the floating continent. I must be almost done. Oh, shit. Okay, I better buy this game. These being the days when you could literally finish a game in an afternoon in one playthrough. Like, I beat DuckTales. I remember I got DuckTales for Christmas one year, I think, or my birthday, one of the two. And I think I beat Uh, it that weekend. Oh, my God. Wow, that was pretty good. Yeah, I was good at video games at that time. (laughs) I wasn't good, so I I, I took my time with video games. Never beat Battletoads. I think I rented Ninja Gaiden like a hundred times from our local gas station because that was what you <laughs> yeah. did at the time. We, we had a gas station that rented video games for some reason. Wow, and that's interesting. Yeah, the gas station's still there. I was driving past it when I was visiting my visiting my parents a couple weeks ago and having oh, sweet. 
fond memories, <laughs> I want to say. But Did he go in and say, I want battle toads? <laughs> <laughs> they, they would look at me like I was a crazy person, because I would be. Yeah, they'd be like, get out. We're calling the cops. They don't get out right now. So yeah, I, I do find it amusing, especially because this was an era where a lot of games didn't have battery saves. And so yes. I'd be playing Mario 3, and that game was a heck of a long game. So I would have to go yeah. to bed. I would leave my NES on and just turn the TV off so that I wouldn't... Uh, lose my progress because I'd be in like Bowser's Castle or whatever. Yeah, I remember those days. Oh, those were days, all right. Uh, it's it's funny that you mentioned that though because Mario Three, I was stunned at how big it was. Like I thought that grassland was the whole game. Speaking of Garland, by the way, so I played Final Fantasy Nine when it first came out, and I so did not get all those Final Fantasy One jokes. <laughs> oh, so I hope you went back and like replayed Final Fantasy Nine and and indulged. So I played the original Final Fantasy IX, did not get the jokes at all, like the rally ho jokes and all of that, <laughs> or the why Vivi as a black mage was so significant. I certainly didn't understand the significance of Garland as a character in that game. Right. Uh, and then I played it again in college and actually finished it. And still, I did not really understand all of the significance of the the references to the original game. It was only much later that... After I had finished uh, it in Dawn of Souls, I want to say, that, like I mm-hmm. said, the GBA port, that I was like, oh, this all makes so much more sense now with the dwarves and all that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and it's actually funny how uh, Final Fantasy XIV has kind of evolved as the Final Fantasy reference game. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah, that also has Garland, the Garlandian Empire and stuff like that. Maybe someday I will actually play that game. <laughs> I really, it is on my to-do list. I really want to do it. So a lot of very notable RPG franchises got their start on the Nintendo, Nadia. We've dwelled at some length on Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy, but here are a few Mm -hmm. others that got started on the original Famicom. Fire Emblem. Yes, a a little known series called Fire Emblem. And to this day, I'm a little bit, like, perplexed that Nintendo wouldn't bring over Fire Emblem for the longest time, but uh, the Genesis got the Shining Force series, which is very similar. Well, it would have been pretty niche. So it came out in 1990, and it was actually a fairly attractive uh, game for the Famicom, if you look at it. Yeah. Uh, It had animated portraits, which was really cool for the time. Yeah, it was actually a, a quite a good-looking game. Um, I have no complaints with the visuals. It was quite a significant game over in Japan. It did a huge amount to popularize that style of tactics RPG. Right. Very influential. So, And again, as usual, it had that wonderful kind of manga look to it, especially with all of the different characters. Uh, the character of Marth was introduced in the original Fire Emblem. Mm-hmm. And actually... While it's considerably slower, um, in many respects, Fire Emblem is much the same as it was back then. It wasn't, it, some of the more crucial elements did not get introduced until later, including the weapons triangle. <laughs> and waifus. So the, yes, and waifus <laughs> did not get introduced until, I believe, Mystery of the Emblem. So, yeah. Yeah, so that original game was purely a tactics game, and... Basically, everything was stats-based. There was no, like, the tactics element wasn't particularly strong in the original Fire Mm -hmm. Emblem. But it did garner a following because it was a good-looking game, and it was novel for the time. And it was following up on Famicom Wars. And, I mean, if you just looked at the box art, it sold itself. It has some of the best box art on the original NES. 
Yeah, it also had uh, several anime adaptations. I think we got at least one, and mm. I don't think anybody knew what the hell it was back then. And the voice acting is just horrific. If you if you look it up on YouTube, it's there. It's great. It ended up getting remade on the Super Nintendo, and I think that's the one that most people know versus the one on the Famicom. And mm-hmm. then it got remade again on the Nintendo DS, and actually I hated Shadow Dragon at the time. Shadow? Oh, was that a remake of the first one? Yes, it was. Shadow Dragon? Oh, okay, because I played that, and I'm like, oh, okay, fine, why not? Yes, there was Shadow Dragon, there was Fire Emblem Shadow Dragon, and then Fire Emblem Gaiden, which ended up being mm-hmm. remade into Shadows of Valencia. So. Right, okay. So the, yeah, That's how you know when a series is, has, has been around in Japan, has been popular in Japan for a very long time when they have remake after remake of the first game. Yeah, uh, there was a lot of rumors that they were going to eventually remake Genealogy of the whole Holy War, but that hasn't happened yet, sadly. That I'd like to play. I'd like to see that. I would also like to see that because among a certain generation of Fire Emblem fans, that one is often regarded as the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a certain reader on U.S. Gamer who, I think it's Gamer Law, who is constantly going, like, Fire Emblem, Shadow, Genealogy of the Holy War, grr, grr, grr. So, like, they hate it or they love it? No, they love it. I think they're the ones who are always advocating for Octopath Traveler as well. Oh, okay, so they're they're an ally. Yes, so, well, no, they're always chastising me for my Shadows of Valencia review and for... Uh, oh. <laughs> and also for my opinions on Octopath Traveler. Oh, you're on a shit list, cat. Gamer Law, I think we have more in common than you know. I just want to say I think that so. much. Be friends. But other major franchises that got their start on Famicom, you may have heard of a little game called Megami Tensei. Yes, that's right. Um, of course, uh, that was before it became Shin Megami Tensei as we know it today. Although that was, it was a dr- it was a dungeon crawler, wasn't it? It was, it a, was dungeon a dungeon crawler, crawler. very wizardry like. It was based on the novel Megami Tensei. Right, right. Which so it was a little different. Which, uh, I mean, the novel, of course, introduced a lot of the elements that we know today, kind of a Mm -hmm. post-apocalyptic Tokyo, um, the idea of demons, uh, somebody, a computer hacker that's uh, entering the world of demons, I believe. That's the whole thing. And I'm not that familiar with the original SMT story. Just I I know that there are certain tropes that appear throughout uh, throughout the series, but... Oh, just Nintendo, how, like, they were so, like, adamant about not having crosses or any any religious symbolism whatsoever to the point that, like, even in Castlevania, the, the holy water was, quote-unquote, a firebomb. Can you imagine, like, hey, Nintendo, we want to bring this game about, like, making friends with demons over to the West? Oh, that sounds great. That wasn't going to happen. <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. Not in a million years. Well, I think there, were, there was religious iconography even in the first game. Like, they was fairly charged with that, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, if you look at the original... Megami Tensei game, it's pretty slow. It's just like the original Fire Emblem is extremely slow. But, I mean, from a sprite standpoint, it's actually one of the best looking games on the original Nintendo. Yeah, um, I think even some of the demon uh, uh, portraits slash designs that they used for that very first game, they still, they adapted for newer games, like right up to Persona 5. So that says to how good the original sprites were. Yeah, the original Megami Tensei really stood out because it had a real atmosphere to it compared Mm -hmm. to um, other RPGs, whereas Dragon Quest was fun and cute. Megami Tensei had kind of a horror element to it. Yes, definitely a lot more hardcore in that that regard. 
Yeah. And it also introduced uh, systems that still persist today in many respects, including the demon fusion system and the ability to recruit demons. And so the fact that it was that deep for an NES game is really impressive. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the most uh, recent Shin Megami game that I know of is uh, Strange Journey Redux, which, of course, has it still has all of that. You have the demon fusion. You have the making friends with demons. And, of course, Persona is it's a major part of Persona as well similarly smt4 as well so yeah mm-hmm. so i mean i mean obviously megami tensei has persisted and become one of the pillars of japanese rpgs over the years which is funny given that it was an adaptation of a novel yeah it's kind of been long yeah, since forgotten. i actually found that very i still find that very interesting and of course persona has grown to overshadow the original smt series but i think a lot of people still love mega 10 and even prefer it to the persona oh, yeah, games sure. So, and then finally, one more major franchise that got started on Famicom, Earthbound. Oh, right. Yeah. How could I forget? Jeez. Yeah, they brought, uh, they, they finally, finally brought that over as, what was it, Earthbound Beginnings? It might have been Earthbound Beginnings. It came out on the Wii U, I yeah, want to okay. say, right? Yeah, I, I remember now. Uh, basically, they were going to bring over Earthbound uh, many, many years ago. And, of course, as we discussed earlier, it took forever to localize RPGs back then. So, by the time... They had it localized and it was pretty much finished. Uh, by then, you know, the SNES was almost a thing or already a thing. So they just scrapped it. And they, yeah, they finally released it as Earthbound Beginnings on the Wii U. And um, thankfully, they released it with some quality of life improvements like um, uh, better, you know, faster experience buildup. I think there's a run button. Uh, I don't think there are as many game-breaking bugs as there are in the original. Mother 2 and Mother 3 definitely overshadowed the original Earthbound, which ultimately was a fairly simple RPG, but its sense of humor and unique style definitely made it stand out from its uh, contemporaries. Yeah, it, it definitely has a very unique style. It has a very, um, this is a Shigesato Itoi, even back then, like he was a copywriter, and there, you'll find like stories about how he became, how he pitched Earthbound to Shigeru Miyamoto. And initially, Miyamoto said no, and he, like, apparently went home crying, which is really sad to, to think about. But um, you will still see, like, Itoi's, um talent as a writer in in Earthbound Beginnings because he has some really... I always appreciated how he took video game stories more seriously than a lot of game writers. He, he really kind of broke the mold by making uh, Mother a game that's set in modern times in, in, a, in a suburban environment... Uh, of course, you'll find baby Gygas in that game who actually looks a hell of a lot like Mewtwo. Uh, when I saw Mewtwo in Detective Pikachu, I was like, oh man, that's amazing. That just looks like what Gygas would look like. So some more notable NES RPGs from that time period. Uh, Nadia, where do you fall on these Is Zelda 2 an RPG uh, discussion? Uh, I'm going to give it to Zelda 2 because it does require you to level up if you want to get anywhere in that game um of course it is still extremely action-based but there you have to there is much more of a dependence on leveling up and getting stronger than there is in say the original zelda or zelda 3 or pretty much any other zelda ever it is the most rpg maybe of any zelda it is and you have like i know zelda 3 has the spells but zelda 2 has like a full repertoire of spells that you really have to make use of if you want to get through the game I think Zelda 2 is an RPG in the same sense that Dark Souls yeah, is an go. RPG, which is to say that it is not. <laughs> hey, hey. 
It has some dungeon crawling elements. It has RPG elements, but ultimately the action is the thing. No, you are right, right about that. It is definitely one of those games where I will sit here and say, oh, I will sit here and say, oh, okay, yeah, let's talk about it in an RPG context. But if you say, okay, it is one of the best RPGs of all time, I'll be like, eh, I'm not too sure about that because you are absolutely right. That game demands you have good reflexes. Not that it really matters, ultimately. I mean, you're kind of splitting hairs a little bit, but eh, I just, that's just kind of where I fall. Like, if my if my feeling is an RPG, like, combat does not come first. It's storytelling and character customization and that kind of thing. Like, that is the difference between a game like Diablo and a game like Zelda right. 2, where if you spend a lot more time customizing your character and everything versus actually having to do Twitch mechanics and Twitch combat, or even a game like Witcher 3, where the com- where the story ends up being front and center and the choices you make are front and center versus the combat. Yeah, although I will give a shout out to uh, Zelda 2 for having a really incredible instruction booklet with some really nice art. And I didn't realize until many, many, many years later when I met my husband and we kind of combined our game uh our game collections since i lived in in canada uh nintendo kind of cannibalized their own instruction booklets to make room for french so i had kind of a a half a zelda 2 instruction booklet that was missing a lot of art and i was so mad about that oh wow that's horrifying (laughs) and now they do it with all of their instruction booklets instruction booklets don't even exist anymore yeah, what a pity, right? Because it was always so much fun to page through those instruction yeah. booklets and look at the wonderful art and read about read the descriptions of every single one of the yeah, items. That was uh, Nintendo back in the day had they put a lot of care into those instruction booklets, uh, massacring it for French notwithstanding. Uh, and Zelda Two had a really kind of a dark story for its time about how how like Ganon's minions had to kill Link so they could sprinkle its blood on Ganon's ashes and bring him back to life. I should have known that I would become an RPG fan because I would always read those instruction booklets religiously and I cared about the oh, lore. Oh, me too. And yeah, they lot. were like, to me, it was like when you bought a new game, it was like part of it was a new game, but part of it was also the, the instruction booklet and all the cool stuff that came with it, especially back, you know, in the heyday of 16-bit RPGs when you got like these big, huge instruction booklets full of great art and sometimes you got like supplementary maps and stuff. So I think Zelda ultimately caught on in America in a way that Dragon Quest or Final Fantasy did mm-hmm. not initially because Americans like action games. They just do. I think um, that is part of our culture. We really enjoy a good action game and Zelda game, Zelda has the dungeon crawling elements mm-hmm. and everything, but it also has Twitch gameplay. It's not no. boring. We don't like to be bored here in the US. No, that's uh, one of my like memories as a kid was i'm trying to like play dragon quest and my brother's like oh let me play and he's like you know hitting a to get through all the everyone talking he's like well they shut up and i'm like you have to listen to the story what's wrong with you it's funny because i'm watching ken burns's baseball documentary Mm -hmm. at the moment and one of the reasons baseball became popular in america versus cricket or rounders was that cricket was too slow for (laughs) americans and so he picked up baseball (laughs) i didn't know that but then, of course, now baseball is way too slow for Americans, too. We've always been the ADD nation. I guess so, yeah. I mean, I growing up, I kind of knew cricket because I had a lot of, like, you know, kind of Arab friends, and, and uh, they all were kind of into cricket. So I, I just kind of got it by a little bit by osmosis, and we'd play it in their backyard or whatever. To this day, I still don't know what the rules of cricket hit are. The, I, I just remember hit the ball with a big paddle. Uh, so some more RPGs. Uh, Star Tropics? Yeah, uh, Star Tropics is an interesting case because if you look at his overworld, it looks very much like, say, Dragon Quest. But if you get into his dungeon, you get a very different sort of point of view where the sprites are all much larger and the action is much more action-based. 
Uh, I was never a huge fan of Star Tropics, but I respect it, and I know a lot of people who are really into the series and want to see it come back. Star Tropics, if you want to count it as an RPG, I mean, by the standards of what I was kind of laying out, it's not really an RPG. Ultimately, again, it has some RPG elements. You get stronger yo-yos as time goes on, but it's still mostly an action game. Uh, I did, I, I played Star Tropics and Final Fantasy Legend around the same time, and I think Star Tropics was actually the game that I spent the most time on the line with the Nintendo hotline for. <laughs> really? So you actually call that thing? Yeah, because I couldn't figure out how to advance past this one particular room. And they kept telling me to go to where this one slime was. And it was underneath the slime. But the slime wasn't oh. freaking there. So I must <laughs> have been in a different area. <laughs> yeah, or you got a bug or one or the other. I got a bug or, no, I played through the beginning of that, the, the early parts of that game so many times and got to the second dungeon so many times and yet I could not figure out how to advance. It was always annoying. I got it on my, uh, my Switch now because it's part of Nintendo Switch Online. Oh, that's right. It is. Yeah. I actually started it and I was like, oh, this is kind of pretty. Yeah. It was uh, another one of those games kind of like Mother where you appreciate what, you know, how these new ideas that were put into it. I think it was actually designed with Western audiences in mind. I don't know if or when it came to Japan. I don't think we adopted it. Nintendo tried mm -hmm. again, and we ignored them again. Mm. No, I, I, I had, I'm not actually familiar with Star Tropics' development history, so I'd have to look into that. But it certainly has an island flavor to it that's interesting. And it has a little bit of an anime look to it, but not overwhelmingly so. Yeah, it's... Uh, I, I always just like kind of like the, the aesthetic they use. Like I said, the, the kind of the mix between traditional RPG and a more action-based bigger spritey thing so some more uh capcom's willow uh this <laughs> one came up a lot in my research i never played it back in the day i did watch the original willow have you ever seen the original willow nadia very recently actually because my husband is a big fan of the willow game and so he you know uh watched the movie before or after he played the original i don't remember but he was uh he was a fan of the game and yeah i saw the the first movie it was actually surprisingly pretty good for an 80s fantasy movie i enjoyed it I wonder why it tanked so hard. People didn't seem to like it very much. Yeah, and so it, that's a little bit too bad, because I thought it was actually very charming. And as someone who loved the never-ending story, uh, it was better than that. Uh, who was the main character? He's, like, relatively famous. He's been in Harry Potter. Yeah, he was Professor, um, the, the herbology uh, professor, wasn't he? Yeah, and he was in Return of the Jedi as well. Warwick Davis, yeah. That's it, yes. I thought it was really awesome that they made Warwick Davis the star of that movie. Yeah, I think that was actually really cool. Yeah, and uh, the only thing I remember about the movie was the the sorceress who would point at people and be like, pig, and then they would go through extremely graphic transformation sequences. Oh, that's right. That was kind of a, a kind of a disturbing sequence. I think my husband said he was disturbed by that when he was a child. I was certainly disturbed by it. I think that's why I remember it so well, but... There's a very American werewolf in London kind of ass feel to it all. Mm-hmm, definitely. But the original Capcom game, which I did not really know existed, because at this time, it was possible for games to completely pass your notice if you did not happen to know that they existed. Because, yeah. I mean, it wasn't in, ever in the video game rental stores. I didn't see it in the shops anywhere. And it, at this time, it was very common for popular games like Castlevania to not be in the shops or be completely out of print. So yeah, it was just whatever, whatever happened to be 
somewhat popular and somewhat recent would end up being in my stores. But yeah, no, uh, Willow is a very pretty game. It was one of the best looking games on the NES. Again, another top-down kind of action RPG mm-hmm. game. Though you do level up, and depending on how far, far you level up is how fast your sword swings, So among <laughs> other things. And then also you get items and that sort of thing. But uh, ultimately, kind of a more Zelda-ish than a, your typical RPG. Yeah, I never got to play it. It is pretty. You should go check it out sometime. I like it. I might. Uh, and a couple more. LaGrange Point, <laughs> this is um, one of the... Uh, kind of imitators of Dragon Quest, but it uh, was designed by Konami. And the reason I'm highlighting it is it had a custom-built ship with arcade-quality FM synthesis audio, which Jeremy called the technological high-water mark for Famicom. I wonder if that's the same chip they used for Castlevania III, the the Japanese version. Because I mean, that might be be it. That makes a lot of sense, actually, right? Because... Um, I remember that the original Castlevania 3 was also known for its like very high-quality FM synthesis audio, but that did not carry over to uh, the, the American version. No, uh, it, it was a proprietary chip that they used, and it, ha- it, it allowed for a use of like extra sound channels. And yeah, like it's actually quite incredible how good Castlevania 3's soundtrack sounds in the Japanese version of the game, which is why I wrote a thing about how happy I am that we are getting the Japanese versions of those games in the Castlevania collection. So what is the Famicom slash Nintendo's RPG legacy, Nadia? What, why is it so important? Uh, it introduced so many of us to the RPG genre. Um, I think when the NES was at its height, again, as you said, so many of us were at the age where we were a little bit too young for those really complicated computer RPGs, but we were a really good age to get into those big, bright, you know, fun-looking RPGs. And even though, you know, the genre did not take off that well over uh, over here, I think for nerds like you, myself, for a lot of our listeners, obviously, it was a gateway. It was our first, our first, you know, Dragon Quest, our first uh, Final Fantasy, our first, you know, real venture outside of those arcade-style games and into something into something more deep, into something more fantastic, into something that doesn't, like, you know, challenge you to stop and jump on a dime. And I think from a significance point standpoint, I mean, you just can't overlook the fact that console RPGs truly got their start on the Nintendo and the Famicom. Oh, that- absolutely. Yeah. That, I mean, it's just so important. This this is where it all began. <laughs> In the mid-80s, it really with is. a little game called Dragon Quest, everything to come out of it uh, from our JRPGs, uh, like this entire friggin' podcast, is because of yeah. Dragon Quest. Yeah, so thank you, Yuji Hori. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, so did you ever play Retro Game Challenge? Yes, I did. Uh, my husband's very mad at me because I never finished it, and I, I said to him, I'll do the RPG what? bit. I'll, yeah. You never I, finished I, it? I never it's finished the, it. Guadia Quest is at the end. Yeah, I know. And You never I, got I around to Guadia it. Quest? I started it. I don't know why I didn't finish it. It was great. Oh I mean, it's a God. great game. Don't get me wrong. but uh, It's yeah, perfect. I, it, it is, is the perfect. perfect tribute to the original Dragon Quest. It is quite long. It is quite long. It's like a solid six or seven hours, I think. Because mm-hmm. you have to you have to grind. You actually have to grind in that thing. <laughs> Well, it is a tribute to the very first one. Yeah, I mean, so RPGs ultimately kind of caught on in the U.S. 
much later, but I think the NES still was able to accommodate RPGs, right? Uh, It had a a stronger PC RPG presence than a lot of people would give it credit for. And we started to get the first inklings of JRPGs over in the US and Canada with games like Dragon Warrior and Final Fantasy. And then, of course, I mean. So none of the NES games are on our top 25 RPG list because they're still, you know, they're pretty primitive at this point, right? I mean, you probably wouldn't go back and play the original Megaton or the original Fire Emblem. Maybe you'd go play the original Dragon Quest. But, I mean, they still have followings today. The original Final Fantasy certainly still has a following. Yeah, Dragon Quest. You know what? Dragon Quest 3, every once in a while in, in a blue moon, I will go back to the very first original game, even though it has been remade on, you know, Super Famicom. And I just kind of appreciate what it what it is for what for that for its time period. So on that note, what is the best NES RPG, Nadia? Is it Dragon Quest Three? I am giving it to Dragon Quest Three. Um, I appreciate Dragon Quest Four, but I always prefer Three because it's a very uh, I, I always liked how open ended it is, where you start off as like a sixteen year old who wakes up and you know it's like, hey, you got to save the world, and you get to. It's funny, is thinking how I'm more story oriented, but uh, I liked being able to form my own party. I like how open the world is. Like, people don't really give Dragon Warrior 3 enough credit for being quite an open world for its time. And uh, it has a great One of the best twists ever. And it has a great twist. It absolutely does. You know, you can't say the story's bad because it has that great twist. And it has a great soundtrack. I'm very nostalgic for its soundtrack. Yeah, I think the Dragon Quest, the Dragon Quest games and Final Fantasy are the NES RPGs that have certainly held up the best to the extent that people still play them. Yeah. Uh, There was somebody I saw who managed to beat the original Final Fantasy with a party of white mages, and I I bow to their godliness. (laughs) Yeah. um, I don't know if you remember on uh, Jeremy Parrish's forum, Brick Road used to do these crazy, crazy let's plays of Final Fantasy. I think I was talking about Brick Road, yeah. Yeah, where he just tore the game apart and said, I'm going to beat the game with with, with four white mages. Oh, here comes Warmack. Let's do this. (laughs) And he did. And these games were showing glimmers of complexity that absolutely that you may not have really realized. I mean, things like the demon merging system in Megaten, mm-hmm. or the the twists in Dragon Quest Three, or the the time travel plot in the original Final Fantasy. Like, yeah, there were was a, a lot of glimmers of what were to come. Yep. Yeah, you're right. Um, I forgot to to give the, that shout out because even though I didn't like Final Fantasy, I do think that its plot is quite ambitious for its time. So did you enjoy RPGs and the NES? Do you have any particular memories? We'd love to hear them. Leave us a note on the show notes on the website at usgamer.net or drop me a line on Twitter. Uh, Just send me a DM or you can find me at the underscore catbot or send an email to cat.bailey at usgamer.net. We may read your responses on the show. So on that note, let's actually go on to the letters because we are starting to run out of time. Okay, Nadia, last week we reviewed Detective Pikachu, and we also talked about Final Fantasy VII Remake, which has been an ongoing topic. People mm-hmm. are tearing that frickin' trailer apart, and people are obsessing over every last detail, down to the point of complaining about the shape of Eris's head. <laughs> yeah, I just recently learned about this. Apparently in Japan, they think her head's too long? She has a head. What do you want from the girl? <laughs> Jeez, Nadia. <laughs> She's gonna die soon anyway. Whoops. 
FTL Mantis says, I'm not sold on FF7R at all. I think that other than 12, Final Fantasy VII is the best story in the series, and that it tells a really compelling tale of self-doubt and personal growth. Definitely deserves a new translation for its presentation, but I don't think I trust Square to make a compelling action combat system. I revisited FF15 a few months ago and came away even more negative than I did the first time. There's really absolutely nothing going on in the combat. Even the introduction of the ring, which is a cool tool and could have been added to some mechanical complexity, is buried under enough input lag that it's tough to use. The new Kingdom Hearts game felt the same way to me. I'm not convinced they know what it takes to make an interactive combat system, or even worse, I fear that making their combat interactive isn't a priority for them. If Square made Final Fantasy VII Remake feel like, for example, Monster Hunter, with a big, weighty, different-feeling weapons, I would be on board. It would be really cool if Cloud played like a longsword, Barrett like a light bowgun, etc. Instead, I fear it's just going to be another floaty action game that retains the worst of Final Fantasy VII's press X to attack and win trash mob battles, without the rewarding and interesting bosses. So yeah, turn-based is the way to go. Oh, yeah, that's fair enough. I would like to see, actually, uh, a more Monster Hunter-style battle system, but there's no way that's happening. Yeah, I'd be down with it if it were more tactical and interesting in the way that it approached its combat, mm-hmm. maybe similarly to Dark Souls and that kind of thing. Apologies for mentioning the big D word, but <laughs> I think it is the gold standard for action games for a reason. It absolutely is, yeah. And I think that uh, the reason it works so well is that it's not just a hack and slash kind of situation like Kingdom Hearts, which is a real reason that I've never gotten into Kingdom Hearts is that the combat I find is just so boring. So I I would rather that Final Fantasy VII Remake be like that than Kingdom Hearts. Yeah, I just never liked Sora's weird clan shoes. (laughs) And Kuni Nino wants to know when you're going to play Final Fantasy X. That's a good question. I don't know. Soon? Um, I'm kind of busy with Trails of Cold Steel right now, so... uh, (laughs) Soon. Someday. uh, Before I die. There we are. (laughs) All right. Axe of the Blood God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot, Nadia at Nadia Oxford. Make sure to leave us a review. Subscribe to the newsletter. We will be back next week with, I don't know, probably more console RPG quests. Maybe maybe it's about time to review the first half of the year in RPGs, which mm, hasn't been a great uh, first half of the year, Nadia. <laughs> it's been a little bit slim pickings, hasn't it? Yeah, I would say Kingdom Hearts 3 maybe is the biggest of them. Yeah. yeah. But uh, we'll be looking back at that in any case very soon. And Man, it's almost time for E3, Nadia. I've been sitting here making, planning all of that out, so that should be fun. <laughs> oh yeah that's coming up soon and you're going for part of the time not even just the whole a day time. just a day yeah yeah i gotta go check out my other first love sports games oh is that why you're going okay yeah because no one yeah. else is gonna be covering that no no i'm not gonna make everybody else cover fifa or madden or whatever that's my own vice <laughs> you're already too deep in i'm in too deep nadia i try to get out but they keep pulling me back in they keep dragging you back in and they always will they own you now All right, for Nadia and myself, thanks for listening. Until next week, happy adventuring.